This is the first session of our new season. And this is a good reason, I think, if a good reason were needed, for opening by joining together in the Lord's Prayer. And in fact, as we say the prayer, let's think of and commit back to the Lord all that's going to happen during this season of Learner's Exchange, which it's my privilege and responsibility to open right now. So, together, let us pray. <coughs> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you realize what we've done? We have just made liturgical use of one of the very basic teachings that Jesus gave over and over in the course of his three-year ministry. And what is that, you ask? Why the teaching that for Christians God is Father and we are children in the family? It's teaching of great importance, as a matter of fact, familiar in one sense, but I think you will agree that our habit is to gloss over the relationship that we express when we say our Father. We take it for granted, we don't think about it, we move on to next business. My task this morning which I've set myself, is to think about it and to help us as a Christian fellowship to think about it. There's no lack of encouragement in the New Testament to do that. Mark is the exception. Mark's Gospel is a major New Testament book that refers to God as your Father in Heaven, reporting Jesus' teaching, only once. In the other three Gospels, there are dozens of references to the fact that God is the Father of Jesus' disciples, and that relationship is absolute and must be absolutely basic to the living of their lives. I think that in this we are typical of a great deal of the Christian church today, don't you? Do we focus on the fact that we are children of God? Well, maybe a few of us do, but I guess that the majority at least don't. We simply accept, yes, 
uh, when we address God, we say Father. Jesus told us to. And then on we go. Well, my purpose this morning is to dig into this relationship a bit so that we are conscious of what we're saying when we call on God, the Creator, as our Father, and hopefully thereby get into deeper fellowship with Him than we would be otherwise. Now, as I said, you'll see me waving this um, magnifier around. Don't bother. Don't be bothered. Uh, I have to do that in order to keep speaking steadily, which is the way that I would rather speak, and I hope the way that you'd rather have me speak anyway. All through the New Testament, so I was saying, this relationship is assumed and again and again expressed. I said dozens of times. That is true. If you look the matter up in a concordance, turn up Father, you'll be amazed how many times God is explicitly referred to as Father. Simply an, simply an address. And then, of course, again and again, teaching about the relationship comes with the use of the word. And uh, there's matter there for us to take to heart and learn as thoroughly as we can. Uh, in a human family, we hope that the kids, from time to time at least, will take an interest in their parents and in the family of God, there's no doubt that the Lord wants us to take an interest in him. So, what we're going to do is to, well, first of all, to verify the rather bold statements that I've been making. Let me give you one or two examples of ways in which thought about this relationship, a family relationship, is developed in the New Testament uh, so that we do appreciate that there's a great deal here that we need to have under our belt if we're going to be mature Christians. Uh, who are the main teachers of doctrine in the New Testament? Well, I imagine we would all of us agree that uh, the teachers of doctrine who unload the greater amount of doctrine on us readers are the Apostle John, both in his reports of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel and in his first epistle, which is a very weighty document indeed. And then there's the Apostle Paul, no one will doubt that he is a major teacher, indeed. Many would say the major teacher of doctrine in the New Testament. And then there's the writer to the Hebrews, who I think is sometimes neglected when he shouldn't be. 
how long, I wonder, since any of us were on a, how shall I say it, a serious trip, either in personal Bible study or in group study, through Hebrews. Hebrews is dense, I grant it. Hebrews moves along steadily um, with the minimum of rhetoric and the maximum of explanation. Well, that's very instructive for those who are prepared to take their coat and their jackets off, so to speak, and get down to the business of being instructed. But it means you can't read Hebrews casually, at least not the doctrinal parts. I'm not thinking of Hebrews 11, and, but I am thinking of Hebrews 1 to 10. Well, just let me point out quickly some of the major emphases regarding the family. God the Father and we the children, which you find in these three writers. John, well, John is constantly circling round the theme of becoming and then being a Christian. You become a Christian by faith. That's uh, affirmed in the preface to his gospel. I expect you could recite the words, as many as received him. To them he gave, Greek word is best translated, I think, privilege. To them he gave the privilege of becoming children of God, even those who believe on his name. And then, through the rest of the gospel and through First John, as I said, he circles round the theme of how different our lives should be when we become children of God and are in that relational sense alive in the Lord. And, of course, in the spiritual sense also of having the divine nature implanted in us which gives us instincts and priorities which we didn't have before. Well, that's the family likeness. Yes, of course, it's very simple when explained. I only want at this stage, however, to point out that there is a great deal in John about it. And then there's Paul. Well, Paul was... Uh, a very didactic sort of person, that's very obvious. Um, in both Romans and Galatians, which are major teaching units, the notion or the declaration of the reality of our being children of God and God being our Heavenly Father comes out strong at key points. Uh, let me show you. Galatians, let's start there. Uh, Galatians is a book weightier than some people recognize, I think. 
it's a book in which the reality of faith, the range of reality that the word faith covers, is set out in a way which Paul means to be utterly memorable, and I think is. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is how Paul, having got this far in his argument, expresses the matter. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the difference, the difference that's been made. And that's not the whole of the story. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. See, faith is being described here. I live by faith, this faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's faith and nothing less than that. That's what Paul wants us to learn from Galatians 2.20. And assuming that we've picked up the point and that as believers we understand it and are seeking to live by it, crucified with Christ, yes, that's me, and um, living with Christ and his teaching as the directive focus of my choices and my priorities and my attitudes and so forth. Yes, that's uh, the mindset that marks the Christian. And now we jump forward into uh, the beginning of Galatians chapter 4. Now, says Paul, contrast that with the way it was for you and any religion that you had before you became a Christian, before you abandoned the attempt to work your passage to heaven, which is what so many people who are not Christians do. You give, but you give that up and you embrace with both hands, you might say, the new life in Christ, which is in fact yours. For you wouldn't be the believer that you are if the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, weren't in you, animating you, prompting you, directing you, keeping you going, opening up scripture to you, so that your life is life in the Spirit, just as truly as it's life in Christ. Yes, we, we, should, we should come back to life in Christ as such before and through. Well, here we are, says Paul, um, in this new life, which is in contrast with any sort of religion life that, religious life that we had before. And then we read this, it's verses 3 through 6 of uh, Galatians chapter 4. 
When the fullness of the time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born, no, made, sorry, born of a woman, made under the law, to, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive what? Well, here it comes. The adoption of sons. That's Paul's way of summing up the glorious reality of the salvation that comes to us. I don't know how you summarize your salvation when you're asked to testify to it, but here is Paul saying, well, to say adoption of sons is as rich and full and thrustful a proclamation of who you now are, what your identity has become, uh, as you can find. So, uh, so that we might receive adoption as sons, he writes, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son <coughs> into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Yes, if you're a believer, you find in yourself uh, an instinct or an urge to treat God, God the Creator, as your Heavenly Father, trust Him for all needs in all circumstances, focus on Him as the one whom supremely you're concerned to please uh, in the way that you live your life. Please serve. So, um, and, uh, well, you can think of other words which would express that thought. And that's the difference that the spirit, <coughs> of the spirit of the Son makes. But it is, as he says, that God has sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, that is to say, generating in us the cry, the cry of address, Abba, Father. Christians have an instinct for treating God as their Father, who loves them and practices perfect parenthood in his relation with them. In the world, fathers in families don't always behave that way. But in the realm of, Christ of Christian reality, God the Father behaves towards his children always in that way. And here is Paul saying it. Um, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave. That was the spirit of any religion that you had before you became a Christian. Deep down, it was a slave spirit. Uh, it didn't carry with it knowledge of or real communion with a God who loves you. It was rather an attempt to attract the attention and uh, maintain the goodwill of a God 
whose favour you had to win by endeavour of some sort or other. But for the Christian, well, you're in the family now. You have been given the identity of a child of God. You're in process of being given the nature of a child of God to go with it. God's making a new creature out of you. And um, that's the life that, as a Christian, you should be conscious of, thoughtful about, thankful for, and enthusiastic in living. It's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. Well, this is Paul speaking the way that he does. It's, he's actually a very compressed writer. That ought to be said loud and clear. Um, because, I suppose, he knows that papyrus costs money and uh, hiring uh, an amanuensis to take down the things that he says that costs money also. He's clearly developed the skill of compression and in so many places in relation to so many matters uh, he, <laughs> he deals with things so briefly in such a compressed way that he's taken you on beyond them before you really felt the, the point and the power of what he's just been saying. So that you have to go over and over uh, with Paul to make sure you've got the full significance of what he's sharing with you. Well, here, the fact that he's sharing is that we're new beings in Christ. We have new instincts. We have this, the spirit in us. We have the, the, how does one say it, the sense of rightness that goes with the, the thought of God as the Father who cares, to whom we, as his children, shouldn't be inhibited, about talking and spelling out our problems and so forth. We cry, Abba, Father. Abba was the, fam the standard family name for God, as I expect you know. Uh, in the Aramaic-speaking family of the first century, and uh, it's the word that is first of all used by the Lord Jesus and then by, by Paul and the other apostles every time that the reference is to the uh, Christian as he or she relates to the Father and the Father uh, accepts it and relates to us in terms of it. <coughs> Yes, we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, well, no, the, 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 the other, these other words actually are different, but they're expressing the thrust of this phrase. We have an instinct for saying, Dad, which is the word that most, uh, most young 
males, certainly, and lots of females too, learn to use in the family to address the one who's their father. Yes, exactly, that's how it works. So you're no longer a slave, you're a son. And then he goes on to elaborate just a little, uh, despite what I've, uh, I've just said. When it's really important, he does allow himself to elaborate. And here in Galatians chapter 4, that's what he's doing. Um, I look at verse... Oops, where are we? Uh, Verse, yes, verse 9 of the chapter. Now you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. That's terrific, isn't it? It's great that we know God. It's greater still that He, all the time, everywhere and in every situation, knows us. Yes. We've come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And so it goes on, Paul opening up the realm of intimacy between the Father and his uh, spirit-renewed child. Then in Romans you've got similar stuff in chapter 8. I am one of those conventional evangelicals who proclaims in all company that Romans 8 is the mountain top of Scripture. There isn't really another chapter that uh, goes beyond it in terms of celebrating the blessings that are ours as believers who have become God's children. And again, the Spirit is brought in, Um, Romans 8, verse 14, here we go, Uh, sorry, verse 13, all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God, sons specifies children. In John's Gospel, you have Jesus, and then in 1 John, you have John preferring, over and over, to refer to children, sorry, to refer to believers as children of God, which of course is, in our usage, uh, not a sexed word, let's say it that way. in in Paul, more often, you have uh, God as Father and children as... Sorry, am I, am I saying... I think I'm saying this backwards, forgive me. But I am over 90 and every now and then my mind slips. <laughs> Let me say it again. John, in the Gospel, and in the first epistle, both more often refer to Christians as the children of God. 
and uh, being a Christian is being a child of God. Yes. Um, Paul more often refers to the Christian as being a son of God. Well, all right, a son of God gives you the, um, the, the how shall I say, the, the, the theological equivalent of your social status. But um, in, these, in these days, um, the language of sonship, of course, can cause something less than delight in the minds and hearts of ladies who feel excluded. This is a 20th, 21st century thing, as um, surely you must be aware and you must tell yourself over and over again. Yes, uh, the, um, the, 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 the constant self-consciousness about um, sex mattering in these matters uh, well, it's it's just it's just become part of our culture in recent decades. But um, the essence of the matter is, of course, the same for all the children of God, both us boys and you girls. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you you have to realize that in Paul, the preference for talking about sons of God um, is partly deference to the fact that in the ancient world only males could inherit. There was no such thing as inheritance for females. I mean the legal codes in Rome and the various countries that made up the Roman Empire didn't allow for that. Well, we don't live in those days, so <clears throat> we don't have to make adjustments um, adjustments for for that for that fact. Uh, when Paul wants to talk about being a child of God, he does want always to highlight the fact that those who are children of God are heirs heirs of God joint heirs with Christ that's what he's going to say later on in Romans chapter 8 well we all of us very properly want to be included in that well then uh, in general conversation you don't talk about being a son of God you talk about being a child of God and then there's no possibility that uh, now, this is this is how I mean how how Paul must have reasoned it out. Then there's no possibility that um, the ladies will feel excluded simply because of the social conditions that are the background of inheritance talk. Did I say that clearly? <laughs> I know that it's a sensitive point with some people, and they tend to criticise the Bible for not observing the um, social uh, sensitivities of the 21st century. Well, uh, uh, <coughs> what am I to say? It would, be, it would be a miracle and a half if the Bible turned out 
to have been written with a special concern to do deference to the way that the 21st century talked when uh, in previous centuries all over the world it wasn't so. But I'm not going to pursue that except to say note where the oddity comes into the into the situation. Now, what I wanted to show you, actually, from later on in Romans 8, namely Romans 8, 14 through 17, that's, that's the passage, I think. Yes. Um, spirit, you've received the Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out of Father, as uh, we were told in Galatians, uh, and the Spirit himself bears witness, we're told. This is verse 18. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Or, and if children, then heirs. See the, mm -hmm. If he said, if sons, then heirs. Uh, that would create a difficulty for some 21st century female readers. But, um, no, if children, then heirs. Um, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. There's a great deal about suffering as an inevitable part of discipleship in the New Testament. We're familiar with it, I think, so I need not dwell on it now, just to remind you that it's there. Um, if, so if we suffer, yes, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. Togetherness with Christ, he wants us to understand, is the central, integral and integrating fact of the relationship that we are exploring. We wouldn't be children of God by adoption, as we're going to see very shortly, uh, if we weren't in, how do I say it, in um, sh a shared life with the Lord, Je the Lord Jesus, who is the Father's eternal son I was going to say natural son but the word really doesn't fit the father's eternal son uh, he certainly has been there for forever but the word eternal says that better than the word natural so um, this is where we Christians are spirit bears witness with our spirit reading again that we are children of God, and if children, heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, as I said a moment ago. Well, this is enough, I think, to um, open up to us Paul's understanding of what it means to be a child of God. And it's clear that for him, uh, sharing with Christ in his inheritance is a very big thing. 
but a very big element, I mean, in being uh, a child of God. But I'm spending more time over this than I ought to. I hurry on. Hebrews, well, you need to understand how things worked socially uh, in the first century world, Greek-speaking, Roman-speaking, all through the empire in uh, all the different sub-communities that the Roman Empire contained. Um, you have to remember that's the background uh, and then you appreciate the full force of what you have in two places in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 comes first. Here we are. Um, there's a passage here which is not always well understood. Um, it's a passage in which the writer is celebrating the togetherness of the Lord Jesus and the Christians. And um, the way he starts to open up that thought is as follows. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Why? Well, because they have to face suffering and togetherness is the principle in terms of which it works. So if the, the if the if the those whom the Lord the Lord makes Christians suffer, then the Lord Himself, who is their Lord, should share the same quality of life, so that his sympathy with them will be full and and complete. Um, and it's it, it expressed this way. Um, it became him for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory to make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For that's what he does. That's, that's the logical flow into the next verse. Yes, that's what he does. For the, for the one who sanctifies, that's the Lord Jesus, and those who are sanctified, those whom he lays hold of by the Spirit, brings into the family and sustains within the family, those who are sanctified are all, of the, all have the same origin. This, um, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Yes, you. It is a thought, uh, a thought worth brooding on. The co-creator of the cosmos, and of you and me within it, 
consents to be called, sorry, consents to call those whom he takes into fellowship with himself brothers. Brothers, that brothers means people on the same footing in relation to the Father as the Lord Jesus is himself. They are creatures and the Lord Jesus is a creator, but the fact is they, they are set alongside them, alongside each other in this verse as brothers. Um, and then Old Testament passages are quoted as being fulfilled in the mind of Christ, like this. He's, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will tell of your name, this is God, the Father's name, to my brothers. Yes, that's a word fulfilled in the mind of Christ. I will tell your name, Father's name, to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation of my brothers, you understand, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And then again, behold, quite explicit now, I and the children God has given me. <coughs> yes, this is the writer to the Hebrews laying the foundation for what he's going to say about the mediation of Christ who extends, shall I say, the arms of his ministry to touch all those whom he takes into fellowship with himself, taking them with him, yes, as he said, into and through suffering, but taking them with him into glory as well. The togetherness is maximized. And this is one of the things that the New Testament writers are concerned to do. Maximize the togetherness in the family of which the Lord Jesus is the elder brother and the head. And then comes a paragraph which we haven't got time, I fear, to go into, I wish we had, in which the writer explains that this being the basic attitude of the Lord and his Father, there is an, there is an abundant basis here for the Lord, the Lord Jesus, stepping into the role of mediator, and uh, therefore, of necessity, being made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And that, as you know, is what the central chapters of Hebrews are all about. How the Lord Jesus entered that role, made the propitiation on the cross, and so redeemed us all for time and for eternity. And also, by experience, 
fitted himself so that he, having suffered being by being tempted, was is sorry is able to help those who are being tempted right now. Well, <clears throat> I've spent time on this because I want you to see and with that feel how momentous and glorious it is that the Lord Jesus being the person who he is, the one eternal Son of the Father, takes this attitude of embrace to those who, those of us, well, this is all of us, who are no more than creatures, but then creatures whom both the Father and the Son love and resolve to save. Well, again, I'd like to dig deeper into Hebrews and show how this theme of togetherness is followed through. I mean, the togetherness of the Son, the Lord Jesus, sustaining by his uh, word and by his spirit, sustaining the saints of God. And Hebrews was written, he had said, to a, a community of saints who were being given a particularly rough time by the, their, how can I say it, their fellow Jews ethnically, whom they had left behind spiritually and theologically. In other words, they'd become Christians and their sometime Jewish friends didn't appreciate that. And we aren't given the details, but one imagines windows being broken and uh, stones being thrown and all that kind of thing, whereby the Jews who stayed Jews expressed their disapproval of the Jews who'd become Christians. Uh, that's the human situation, that's the major part of the human situation uh, into which the letter is directed. But again, um, the clock is beating me and I must hurry on. Let me round off, as it'll have to be, round off by laying out the elements of the doctrine of adoption, God the Father laying hold of us to become his sons, or his, uh, his children, say it whichever way you like, um, lay out the doctrine as it was spelled out in full by those evangelicals who did spell it out in full. And here the point I have to illustrate is that in recent years the doctrine of adoption as a doctrine has been neglected comparatively as compared with the way that it was celebrated in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, particularly in the 17th by the Puritans. 
in the confession of faith, the outstanding confession of faith, uh, which which was produced by Puritans in the 17th century, the Westminster Confession of Faith, put together, may I say, by a hundred theologians, 95 of whom, I think, were Anglicans, and therefore part of the Anglican heritage, um, even though only the Presbyterian churches have ever picked it up. Uh, In the Westminster Confession, let me say, say again, there is a very impressive, condensed, but weighty statement of uh, the doctrine of adoption, which I'm now going to read out. It's chapter 12 in the Confession, and it goes like this. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the, the enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitted, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Inheritance sealed, you might say, indeed scripture virtually does say, sealed to the saints, to those who believe in Christ, embrace him as their saviour, and let's go back to Galatians 2.20, who live by faith in the Son of God, who loved them and gave himself for them. And I put that in the third person because that's what the grammar of my statement suggests, but really it's us that I'm talking about. We are the ones on whom the Saviour has bestowed this favour and for whom he died and with whom now he lives and leads. Well, I hope you'll agree that that um, statement on adoption is very weighty, very strong, very clear. Um, In the Westminster documents, there is a catechism which is hardly known these days, the larger catechism. And question number 54 is the question, what is adoption? And it's answered as follows. 
Um, wait for it. Almost there. Uh, not quite as near as I thought I was. I've missed it again. Question 54. Sorry, I'm wasting your time, which I'm sorry to be doing. What on earth has happened here? What on earth? Oh, I think I know. Yes. Oh, sorry, this is, this is a, a vision thing. I have misread some figures. So sorry. This right? Is it? Isn't it? I told you that my fiddling with the apparatus is nothing to do with you. So uh, here now is um, Alexandra to fill the gap by saying something that will have to do with you. Whatever can I, it is. Can I help you find a page? Is there an index? No, I'm looking for question 54, and I'm not seeing it. I can help you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, the, the material. Yes. It's, uh, that's what I was looking for, and somehow I managed. I managed not to find it. That if my wife were here, that could be a clue for an impressive speech about her husband's clumsiness, <laughs> which shows itself in all sorts of situations. Uh, yeah, wait a minute. Here we are. Christ is. <coughs> no, there's still something wrong. Oh, forget it. Uh, let's forget it. And. Um, Perhaps you'd uh, let me read again the definition from the, from the uh, confession, which says just the same thing. Do you want me to Will find you, it? Pardon? Would you like me to find it? Well, no, I think I can do that. It's uh, Yes, I can. Chapter 12 of Adoption. <sighs> Sorry about this. Um, it may be, friends, that... Um, when you, when, you, when you pass 90, you'll have experiences which resonate with what's happening to me at the moment. Uh, all those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberty and privileges of the children of God have his name put upon them those are called Christians uh, receive the spirit of adoption have access to the throne of grace with boldness are enabled to cry Abba Father because it's the address that fits are pitted protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off 
children, you see, or sons in the family, they retain that status. Um, once you are adopted into a family, there you are. And uh, there you stay. And so it is in the family of God. So the preservation of the saints, who are the adopted ones, becomes a reality. Yes, and last, last um, bit of the sentence here. They are sealed to the day of redemption. The seal is the gift of the Holy Spirit to indwell them. And they inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Well, that's a full statement, it seems to me, of the New Testament doctrine of adoption, and a thrilling statement, too. And um, I must say, of the new catechism that I helped to draft, I don't think we put in a definition of adoption, and I now think we should have done. And uh, I'll express this view in appropriate quarters uh, sooner rather than later. Yes, because it really is the case, you see, that uh, the blessing of adoption is very far-reaching and it holds together so much more of the blessed reality of salvation, which God works for us. Uh, it's all together in the adoptive relationship uh, in which Christians stand to the Father. And uh, one needs that, what shall I say, that organizing, um, organizing impact of the, uh, the, 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 the reality of adoption to hold together all the other blessings, justification, um, reconciliation, regeneration, Restit restoration, so forth. Um, adoption is an integrating blessing, just as adoption is an integrating fact affecting the whole of your life uh, in its relationships um, in the human family. It was a little different, of course, in the first century AD, the stress in those days when in society people talked about adoption was on the strength of the family. When you adopted into it um, a young male of virtue, strength and great potential, which is the way that they did it, uh, they weren't guided by need, uh, or rather they weren't guided by the need of the one they adopted, they were guided by their own sense of need to strengthen the family. And they didn't, they didn't uh, adopt young children, uh, let alone babies. Uh, they adopted young men who would prove their worth 
um, the ordinary candidate for adoption in a Roman or Greek family would have been 20 to 25 years in age. But the firmness of the relationship, which is what we're talking about now, that corresponds exactly now as then, then as now. And I think that we need to get the doctrine of adoption back into a regular pattern of teaching and become ourselves thrilled by it and thrill others by talking about it. Realize it, friends. We are the adopted children of God. Isn't that a great thing? We are the joint heirs with Christ in the royal family of God. Isn't that magnificent? Well, I hope you'll agree with me that it is. And because of the time on goodness, it's, got, it's, uh, it's gone further than it should have done. Apologies for that. Um, I now stop here and we'll let monologue give way to dialogue. So thanks for listening. Questions, discussion, reaction. If I haven't got you excited, well, you'd better not have me speaking again. <laughs> I meant to get you excited, and I hope you realize that. Because I'm excited myself, you see, with the thought that I'm a child of God. I will share that. Questions, comments, yeah? Is there a different use of the teaching about being a child of God, too, that we find, you know, from Jesus talking about the prodigal son, where we are children of God with an inheritance, whether we have accepted it or not? And, you know, when we do accept it, that, that we can find our way back to that relationship. So it's a little different than being adopted. Wonder if that's a helpful thing sometimes when you're speaking with people who are not Christians. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it is very helpful because the prodigal son story is a story that is a parable. The word parable, you know, means comparison, and um, a story, a fiction. Uh, it, it, how can I say, it makes its point by comparison with reality. Um, if the, I mean, you can use the prodigal son story to illustrate many things, and one of them is that God doesn't give up on his um, adopted children just because they have spent time in the wilderness really giving up on him. Uh, that's what they've allowed themselves to do. But he doesn't give up on them. And when they turn back to him, he receives them. They are his children and uh, there isn't any question of them losing their status just because they've acted the fool. Am I making sense? Yes. 
if we if we if we're talking to people who are themselves playing the fool in some moral spiritual way, the thing to emphasize, I think, is that look, I believe that if you saw the life you're living the way God sees it, you would be disgusted with yourself in all sorts of ways. But I want to tell you that if you were wise enough to turn back to God and acknowledge how stupid you've been to do this, behave this way, whatever, you will find that God's uh, God's embrace of you as his child whom he forgives when the child goes off the rails even if the child does it over and over that hasn't changed changed in the least adoption is a firm status and you can rattle on then about assurance of salvation and such things but that's not quite what you were asking me. No, I just wondered if there is also a sense in which as God's creation that we are all his beloved children, whether we know it or not. And that that is apart from our acknowledging that No no, if if I may say so, that I believe is the great mistake that the liberals have made. And by making it, they have done so much to weaken the church this last hundred, well, this last 150 years. You know, the, 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 the liberals say, if the liberals or anyone else says, uh, well, we're all of us children of God by nature. Well, then the next thing that they are saying in effect, however they express it, is, so what's the big point? What's a bit, why, why speak of abortion, of um, adoption, I'm so sorry, um, speak of adoption as if it's so wonderful. It's wonderful because it's grace to sinners. But if you start saying, well, no, it's the natural inheritance of everybody who's born, you're devaluing it most radically. Seems to be, anyway. I think what's interesting for me is the is the bridge between that though is it's not based on our merit so it's accessible to all so it's not that it's exclusive but it is exclusive if you know what I mean well it's a, yes it's exclusive if you exclude yourself yes but it's not exclusive in terms of God's offer and openness and invitation And that's uh, a central theme of evangelism in all all its shapes and forms. God is still there, and his invitations still stand. So adoption is part of baptism? Mm, Sorry, say that again. Adoption, is it part of baptism, although we don't think of it? Is adoption part of baptism? Well, yes, you could say that. 
Because when we, I mean, when we're baptized, then we're we're in God's family. But we haven't. If we're babies, we don't. We're we don't. We're. It's the strength of those who who believe who are presenting us. Uh, I think that's an overstatement. I think what we ought to be saying is that um, when we are baptized, we are received into the Christian fellowship on a provisional basis. The uh, understanding is that when we get to uh, years of thought, discretion, uh, we embrace the Christian commitment which the baptism service expresses but the alternative to that of course which is the the way it goes for so many people is that they never do that and so they fall away from that provisional inclusion which was theirs well until they turned their back on the idea of Christian commitment and I know that the world is, the, the Anglo-Saxon world anyway, is full of people who are quite sure in their hearts that because they've been baptized, they don't need a personal commitment. Uh, and, um, well, alas, that is not so. A great deal of John Wesley's ministry for 60 years, you know, was... Uh, trying from the pulpit and in counselling to disabuse people at that point. He made a very big thing of it. At the risk of taking us down a completely different road, but I'm quite fascinated because I'm not familiar with the Westminster Confession, but it seems to be that what you read was really insightful and profound. So why, given that there were so many Anglicans on it, was it not accepted? Oh, it was politics. Um, It was produced during the years in which the Church of England had been declared... uh, Well, sorry, when I say Church of England, I should say Church of England worship, uh, the Church of England order, or organisation better say, uh, had been declared unlawful in England because the Church of England had backed the royalists, the king, believing in the divine right of kings, uh, which had caused the civil war. And um, it was the Puritans, the Commonwealth people, who won the civil war, and they behaved in the way that people who win wars tend to behave, they squelched the people they defeated in so thorough and overdone a way that um, they built up terrific resentment and so provoked uh, a reaction which swept them away. The reaction in this case was the restoration of the monarchy. Well, back came the king and a royalist parliament and lo and behold the Puritans were immediately put under all sorts of pressure 
and that's how it was for the next 30 years. Think and think for a parallel of um, Germany put under monstrous pressure uh, by the Peace of Versailles after the First World War and uh, that overdone pressure had a great deal to do with the rise of Hitler and the emergence of the Second World War. Uh, but, you know, when you've, when you've won a war and you belong to the race of, uh, uh, how do I say it, people with sinful hearts, you tend to abuse the position that you've now reached in which you are the top group and the other chaps are groveling at your feet. Thank you very much. So thank, um, thank you for that insightful review of scripture, church history, and world history. <laughs> Always a multiple benefit from listening to Dr. Packer. You may you may mock your ninety years, but I I, I call it sage wage, sage wisdom. So.